close your eyes. No, really, close your eyes. And imagine this. You're on a spectacular beach with a coastline that looks like it goes on for days. The water is a perfect turquoise. The beach is white and warm, and behind you is a lush green rainforest. The sounds of waterfalls and exquisite tropical birds fade in and out with the sounds of the waves. It sounds like paradise, doesn't it? My guess is when I say the words Costa Rica, this is the scene that comes to mind. For most people, well, people outside Costa Rica, this is what they know of the country. And if you've ever been, you will know that it looks so perfect. You wonder if you've somehow found yourself in a desktop background. But the thing that most people don't know is that Costa Rica also has a very important story to tell about women in top political roles. My name is Kate Graham, and this is Canada 2020's No Second Chances. This season, we are examining what has worked in countries around the world to increase gender representation at the top. So far, we've been from Canada to Denmark to Taiwan to Chile to New Zealand and to the U.S. of A., and today we're in stunning Costa Rica. And I've got some big news for you. Costa Rica has had one female president, and in today's episode, well, we will be talking to former Costa Rica president, Laura Chinchilla. Costa Rica often gets uh, held up as one of the countries that's doing better in terms of women um, and political representation. Meet Dr. Jennifer Piscopo. She's director at the Center of Research and Scholarship and a professor of politics at Occidental College. Her expertise is in gender and politics in Latin America, and she's published extensively on Costa Rica. It's a small country. Um, it is historically been more democratically stable relative to its peers in the region. Uh, so there was a civil war in 1948, but since then, you know, Costa Rican politics have been, you know, relatively stable, relatively violence-free, a lot of alternation in power between political parties, the kinds of things you want to see in a healthy democracy. And it has, you know, a slightly higher uh, standard of living relative to some of its other peers. So that means women um, have access to university education, to uh, professional opportunities. So there's a pipeline for, for women in, in higher office, including political office. So Costa Rica, um, starting in the 1990s, followed a, a broader trend in Latin America. It adopted a gender quota law. So political parties were required to run a certain percentage of women. And it was actually the second country in Latin America um, to adopt this a gender quota law following Argentina. So starting in 1998, political parties in Costa Rica had to have 40% of their candidate slates uh, be comprised of women. And that was later raised to 50% or what we call gender parity uh, starting in the 2010 national elections. So they have had um, about 30, 40, 50% women in, in the national chamber over the past 20 years, that number has increased. And in the 2022 elections, um, women now hold about 47% of the seats in the legislature. And again, it's a small country, so it's a small legislature. So we're talking about a single chamber of a single chamber, right? Uh, and only 57 seats and women currently hold 27 of those seats. So the numbers look really great. Um, but if you go on the ground and you talk to women politicians, you know, they're going to tell you about 
of the fights in the political parties to have this gender quota law first at 40% and then at 50%. They're going to tell you that they still face, you know, difficulties within their political parties about not just becoming candidates, but becoming candidates where they feel supported by the parties and their campaigns. And especially at the local level, you know, we still see in Costa Rica, the underrepresentation of women as mayors um, and the underrepresentation of women in some more of the top political posts. So it's a story of both a lot of progress, but those numbers, which suggest a lot of equity also can obscure a lot of ongoing uh, forms of gender discrimination that women politicians still still face. Okay, back it up. So these quotas have been around for quite a while now, and we don't really have anything comparable in Canada, and it's 2022. So what was the impetus for quota laws in the first place? I mentioned that Argentina was the first, and this is a podcast about Costa Rica, but, you know, some insight is that Argentina, which adopted its gender quota law in 1991, which was at first 30% and then later raised to 50%, you know, it was part of a broader conversation of democratization in Latin America and that Latin American countries wanted to become more democratic. Argentina, for instance, was exiting um, from a military dictatorship. Now, that wasn't the Costa Rican experience, right? Costa Rica is a longstanding democracy, but these are arguments about the importance of women's representation for countries that were looking to improve their democracy, looking to be better democracies, these arguments that modern democracies didn't discriminate against women and they needed to have uh, legislatures that looked like the people they governed were really powerful, especially in these global South countries that, that wanted to demonstrate their democratic credentials. So the challenge in some of these more established democracies like Canada is they're like, well, we got this. Right. Um, which, of course, as you know, that might not be true. But in newer democracies, it's easier to leverage the importance of women and other underrepresented groups being present as part of that country's democratization process. And then in terms of the quotas becoming stronger, you know, they work like any other public policy. They create beneficiaries. In this case, the beneficiaries of quota laws are women. Right. Who are getting chances that weren't being open to them previously. And. In most cases, when the quota laws were first implemented, they didn't work perfectly right away. Uh, political parties often designed them to have a lot of loopholes or what we call escape clauses, which makes sense because then they could be adopted and the parties could get all the benefit of seeming to be democratic, but knowing they wouldn't have to work in practice. But some women did benefit, some women were elected, and then they formed powerful uh, constituencies in the legislature to really insist that the quota laws had to be made stronger, they had to be improved, and they had to, you know, close those loopholes so that they could work as designed. So the other important part of the story is about feminist mobilization and the pressure that many women kept up in the parties and then in the Congress uh, to insist that the laws be revised, and some often at great political cost to themselves, right? But seeing the, the bigger picture and the bigger importance of having these laws in place. It's quite an inspiring story, really. This relentless push from within the feminist movement, including inside multiple political parties. So I asked Dr. Piscopo, how does this translate into leadership and representation at the top? 
So, you know, I mentioned these these quota laws that slowly raised um, the political representation of women in Costa Rica's legislature over time. And so one thing those quota laws do is they do elect more women. They make women more visible as national leaders. Right. And so we do think that that matters um, both for electing more women to the legislature, but also for having um, women chief executives. So in the case of Costa Rica, that would be a woman president. Uh, Costa Rica has a system where there's two vice presidents. And so even before uh, Lara Chinchilla was elected president in 2010, you know, there were some very prominent women and actually prominent feminist women who had held the vice presidential role. And even though those roles don't um, have a lot of policy influence, they're very visible, right, at the national level, especially in a small country like Costa Rica. Um, so Lara Chinchilla was elected in 2010, and her path to office is really similar to some of the other women that were elected uh, president at roughly the same time in Latin America. So I'm thinking about Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner in Argentina, Michelle Bachelet in Chile, Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. And, you know, all four of them um, came, were the nominee from incumbent parties. So the party holding the office had the presidency when the election arrived, and it was a very popular party, right? Um, so these women presidents, you know, Bennett, benefited, right, from running as the incumbent party and the incumbent party, you know, enjoyed broad support, uh, even as the election went went forward. Um, she, like her compatriots, you know, didn't come out of nowhere. She was a former cabinet minister. So she had um, a deep professional uh, profile. And the outgoing president, right, in that incumbent party, um, very much supported her candidacy. So those three factors, right, a popular outgoing party, uh, support from the outgoing president, so saying, you know, this is my, my designee, this is who I, who I support, and um, having her own, you know, professional qualifications, very much standing as a president in her own right um, really contributed to her, her victory. We've now learned a bit about Costa Rica politics and this ongoing push to see more women elected, more women rise to power, and finally, in 2010, the first female president, Laura Chinchilla. Well, friends, and I can't believe I'm saying this, but here she is. It was an honor for me to interview President Chinchilla, and it's an honor for me today to introduce her to you. I want to start saying uh, for the people to understand better what Costa Rica is about, that we, um, we are one of the oldest democracies in Latin America, and one of the three, alongside with Chile and Uruguay, consider it uh, as, uh, as full democracies. And one of the reasons behind this is our strong civic culture, that we have tried to instill in our children who have the possibility of voting in national elections. Although their vote doesn't count to elect presidents or lawmakers, it symbolizes an important democratic exercise. So thanks to this tradition, I enjoyed very early and intensely the civic life of my country. As a student, for example, I was always interested in social problems and got involved in student governments and associations. Uh, but I would say that, you know, along with this uh, uh, involvement um, on my part, since I was uh, very young in, uh, in, uh, in national and local issues, I would say that what most influenced my decision to dedicate myself to public service and politics was that when I turned 20, um, 20 years old, uh, 
um, still in college, I decided to travel to our neighboring countries in Central America. Uh, at that time, Central America was, uh, uh, in, was, was uh, suffering uh, civil wars in many countries. And I did it, you know, in buses, as a backpacker and alone. Um, and what I saw in those countries, um, Nicaragua, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala, um, deeply hurt me and marked me forever. The brutality, the violence, and sadness that I witnessed could never be forgotten. Uh, and also the role of the armies fighting against their own citizens. Hence, I decided that I would do everything I could to prevent our country from losing the political stability, the peace and democracy uh, we enjoyed. So for me, the best way to achieve that goal was by getting involved in politics and public service. Inspiring, right? A country that values its democratic tradition and a leader who is motivated to protect it. I spoke with former President Chinchilla about Costa Rica's concerted efforts to increase gender representation. And of course, I had to ask, what was it actually like to be the first and still today the one and only? Uh, well, certainly becoming the uh, first president of Costa Rica was an honor, but also was a big challenge. Uh, because beyond the complexities that are inherent to politics, uh, women face additional challenges, especially when they are the first to assume certain positions, as it was in my case. Uh, according to my experience, I would say that the most important challenge that women uh, face, and especially those aspiring to reach leadership positions, is the negative role of social norms and stereotypes on female leaders. Uh, those stereotypes are used against women to attack us and debilitate us. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, during the presidential campaign, uh, I participated. My political opponent decided to present me in his political ads as a puppet whose strings were handled by males, although I was the candidate with more experience in public service and with a political career forged uh, over many years. Um, but uh, even, you know, after I won the elections, uh, when I thought that, you know, that kind of experience uh, will never happen again, um, and I won for a very large margin, but after I won the elections, um, I realized that reaching the tops was only the beginning of a bigger enterprise because for women to stay in leadership position, positions is as hard as reaching them. During the whole constitutional period of my mandate, every day was a constant battle to contest those who kept wondering if, uh, as a woman, I will be capable of resisting pressures, overcome complex crises, or taking informed and independent decisions. For instance, uh, when a journalist asked me if I had been in the beauty salon getting my nails done just because I disappeared 
from the public spotlight a couple of days to work with the members of my cabinet in a new tax law. Or when another once questioned uh, whether I had done the household during uh, the weekend or if I had cried when any kind of tragedy tragedy happened in the country. So these stories are not exclusive to me. I have shared them with other female head of states and top female politicians who confirmed that they also face similar discriminatory episodes. Uh, just to finalize, uh, it is important to underline that sexist views of power are reproduced every day around the world. And the media, uh, even social media, play uh, a very uh, important uh, also role in um, overcoming this kind of obstacles. So more than any other legal, material, or physical barrier, social norms are the most complex obstacles to women's aspirations. Confronting prejudice is a hard, but also a fundamental task in pursuing gender equality. Indeed, it is. So how, as president, did you work towards doing exactly that? When Costa Rica elected me as president, there was a security crisis going on, characterized by a growth in criminal violence and the increasing presence of organized crime gangs. Due to my previous experience as Minister of Security, because by the way, I was also the first Minister of Security in Costa Rica. So my, my, my main pledge to Costa Ricans was to make Costa Rica a safer home for all its inhabitants. And I succeeded between 2010 and 2014. Uh, we decreased homicide rates by 30%. And very importantly, we reduced femicide rates by 50%. There were also some positive outcomes resulting from policies to reactivate the economy, promote, promote early childhood care programs, protect our seas diversity, and of course, enhance women's empowerment. But um, by the way, uh, uh, during my administration, uh, we also achieved gender parity at all levels of education. However, Beyond these specific achievements, I believe that my major accomplishment was to break the glass ceilings in politics when becoming the country's first president after nearly 200 years of Republican life. Let me tell you a story so you can better understand what I mean. Um, as, 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 as I told you um, at the beginning of this uh, conversation, we in Costa Rica organized children elections, which are held the same day of the adults general elections. Well, in 2014 um, presidential elections, I won the children's election by a wider margin than the adults elections. That result stayed very close to my heart. And that is why I decided soon after winning to visit some of the schools to greet and thank the children. When I arrived to some of the schools, the teachers gave me some beautiful news. The day after I was elected president, several girls announced that they will also run for president when they grow up. 
At that moment, I became fully aware of the extent of my decision to run for president, to change forever my country's understanding of women's participation in politics. So I will say that we were able, in a certain way, to change an entire generation. If you're like me, you're probably already Googling children's elections as you listen to this, because, uh, what? Yes, you heard correctly. On election day, kids in Costa Rica from age six and up are invited to cast ballots through electronic tabulators. Now, these votes aren't counted towards who actually wins the election, but they are reported. And my guess is that it does a lot to build that deeply democratic culture that Chinchilla spoke about earlier. I asked the former president about her thoughts on the quota system. We heard Dr. Piscopo speak earlier about how instrumental they have been in seeing more women elected. But what's the perspective of someone who's actually been inside the political system? No doubt, uh, affirmative action policies are very critical and effective in tackling women's discrimination in politics. We in Costa Rica approved in uh, 1996 the first reform to our electoral laws, introducing the 40% quota for women's political participation. And in 2009, we introduced uh, in the electoral legislation the parity. Although we were not able to achieve those quotas from one election to another because too many things um, happen, you know, between the moment we approved the laws and the moment we uh, were able to, to implement them. Uh, however, they explain why we were able to double the female representation in Congress after the first law was enacted. Uh, but besides the affirmative action mechanisms, it is also critical to work on the huge disparities in women unpaid work and in economic gender disparities because they have an impact on women's personal, professional, and political aspirations. For women to have access to power, we also need to reduce the economic gender gap but by enacting regulations and promote attitudes that allow women to participate in the workforce uh, and in the business community under equal conditions to those of men. In that sense, I think it is critical to promote initiatives at basically three levels. Some of them have been also promoted here in Costa Rica. Uh, first is try to close the gender pay gap between and within sectors. Secondly, advance more women into management and leadership position in the economic sector. And finally, enables women's participation in the labor force by the provision of childcare support and reducing the burden of unpaid work. Precisely, one of the most important policies that I implemented during my administration was the early childhood care programs. According to the studies and surveys that we ran at that time, the main concern of working women was not having alternatives for the care of their children while working. The child type of, uh, system that we designed allow mothers to enter the workforce or to pursue uh, their ambitions to study or to get involved in, in politics. So the impact of this kind of programs on thousands of women's lives 
was, in my case, uh, a very gratifying experience, but also it allowed uh, us to improve uh, women's access uh, to political rights. So let's hear it in the words of a woman who has really lived it. Why exactly is the representation of women in politics important? There are many reasons um, um, why it is important uh, to see more women in senior political roles. Uh, Not only this is a matter of justice, ethics, and human rights, since we encompass 50% of the world population, but let me tell you that it is also a matter of bringing more legitimacy to the political systems uh, in times when you know, citizens feel uh, very much uh, disengaged from uh, political institutions, but also uh, they bring more effectiveness uh, to government and public servants. I am convinced uh, about this. Um, women, female leaders in general terms have a distinctive way of leading, which means more diversity, more innovation, and a very good complement to males' leadership. Uh, to To better explain my point, let me use the example of what has happened during the times we are going through uh, the pandemics, uh, 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 you know, experience all around the world. And one of the major factors that helps to explain why some nations have done a better job than others in dealing with the pandemic disease is the quality of leadership. There, are, there, there is no doubt about the, the, the importance, the impact of leadership in dealing with the pandemic uh, uh, challenges. And what we have witnessed uh, from some leaders is, is, is truly appalling. Heads of the states that denial the magnitude of the pandemic, promoted public mass events and discouraged vaccination, among other irresponsible actions, all of which costed the lives of thousands of people. But what is, what is interesting is the fact that a very high percentage of governments headed by women manage pretty well the pandemic situation. Beyond the individual strengths and merits of those female leaders, I think that there are some features of leadership most commonly found among women. And these features are particularly relevant in conditions like those we experience with the pandemic disease. Specifically, I refer to the following three leadership conditions. The first is a combination of respect with discipline. Women tend to display a distinctive approach to power. I would say that it is a less arrogant attitude, much more willing to listen and to conform policy with respect and discipline to technical and scientific criteria. The pandemic was a situation where politicians have been forced to abide like probably never before to science. This kind of dialogue between politicians and scientists or technicians are going to be decisive in shaping policies amid the planetary changes that the world will face ahead. The the second feature is empathy. Women have a 
increased ability to identify with others people's, uh, with other people's feelings and needs. As women leaders, we have to navigate more challenges, less accepting political environments, which may have forged within us greater interest in bridging social divides, building social cohesion and consensus, as opposed to polarizing and divisive approaches to governing. Uh, and again, this is a moment where the conditions of leadership such as compassion and solidarity are being put to test. So leaders must be able to ask their citizens to some sacrifices in order to protect the most vulnerable sectors. And finally, women's typically uh, collaborative leadership style is very well suited to coalition building and dialogue. Much necessary conditions in moments in which leaders need to engage in a day-to-day -day conversation with many sectors and with the population at large in order to build support around the complex decisions that they have to adopt. Um, so if someone still have doubts about the ability of women to lead, I think the pandemic is the best confirmation that we are very well prepared even in the most adverse circumstances. Final question from me to the former president. What advice do you have for Canadians who want to see more representation in our politics? Canada is a um, role model uh, concerning uh, democracy, the protection and promotion of human rights, uh, the, um, you know, the, uh, the access uh, to opportunities and to social services. So I will say that when you have all of those conditions in a nation, uh, that is the best possible, uh, you know, uh, enabler for women rights. Um, because when you have the opposite, I mean, no democracy, uh, the violation of human rights, and in general terms, no access to opportunities, usually uh, the women are the ones uh, who suffer the most from those kind of uh, extreme conditions. So Canada, in general terms, and I'm sure performed very well uh, in many indicators considering the gender gap. Uh, however, I understand that you still uh, don't have um, any kind of uh, quota laws and uh, I think that Canada uh, had the conditions to be in a better position uh, when we talk about the participation of women in parliament and also uh, a more uh, decisive participation of women in uh, national political campaigns to aspire to become you know, the leaders of the country. You had the opportunity to have a uh, prime minister, if you may, prime minister, but I am sure that Canada is already prepared for having the second one. Uh, in those terms, um, you know, I will very much advise uh, Canada to continue discussing about the importance of um, embracing uh, other legal reforms so women can have uh, more possibilities to access to uh, political positions. 
And then we closed with this, a lovely note to conclude on. Kate, um, I will only say that congratulations for this very important initiative. Uh, the best way for women uh, to tackle many of the obstacles that uh, they find on the road is try to share their own experiences uh, with their peers. So I'm very glad uh, to, um, to, uh, to help you in trying to bridge many other women's uh, and they can have the opportunity to learn from my own experience. We started today with our eyes closed, imagining the postcard-worthy vistas that Costa Rica is so well known for. But I, for one, feel like I'm leaving this conversation with eyes opened. I admire the deeply ingrained democratic values we heard about today and seeing how the country has been able to live these values. Innovations like children's elections to improve safety and security for women to progressive quota laws. Well, these are all important steps forward. And as with each country we have visited, I am grateful for the lessons that we can take away and bring home with us to Canada. Next on our tour is a country I cannot wait to share more with you about, Namibia, including a Prime Minister interview that you won't want to miss. I will see you there. No Second Chances is a special project of Canada 2020. This episode was written and hosted by me, Kate Graham, and edited by Aaron Reynolds. No Second Chances is a project of the Canada 2020 team, including Carolyn Smith and Aisha Jara, under the leadership of Executive Chair Anna Ganey. The music is written by Meredith Yeyanos. More information about the project can be found at nosecondchances.ca. And the No Second Chances podcast has been made possible by the generous support of Margaret McCain and MasterCard. <laughs>